Okay, you've said hello to everybody. Everyone's been greeted and welcomed. Great, shall we uh, just offer these few humble words to the Lord. Father, we, we thank you that we can look ahead to the day we stand before your throne with a certainty of your warm acceptance, your love, and an eternity with you. We thank you, Lord, that all of this is possible because you called us to yourself and gave us the faith to place in Jesus our Lord and Saviour. And you have transformed and are still transforming our lives each day. What an amazing, wonderful God you are. I just pray for these words I share, Lord, that you would bring clarity and inspiration and motivation through them for your glory. Amen. It's a bit like an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. This is Judgment Day, part two. (laughs) So we looked at last time, if you recall, at the first element of the Day of Judgment and how I said there was a necessity for there to be a Day of Judgment. It dealt with our inner need to see justice done. When we see what goes on in the world, when we see things that happen to us are righteous things, there's something in us that cries, where is the justice? Well, as Christians, we can foresee that actually there will be a day when justice is dispensed. As a consequence of that, we're also able to forgive, therefore. For God clearly says that vengeance is not for us to take. God will deal with the unrighteous and those who commit these heinous crimes. Vengeance is God. So our knowledge of this day enables us to forgive easier. It also helps us, as we'll come on to in a minute, that knowing that we will give an account for our lives should motivate us in the way we live and the things we do to make sure our lives are lined up with God's purposes and we live for his glory. And then also... I would suggest that surely if we can foresee that one day unbelievers will stand before God with no hope if they don't know Jesus Christ, dear friends, surely that should move us in boldness and compassion to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. So what I want to look at today is a little bit more what actually happens on that occasion. And I think it's good that we just get a picture of the scene. So I'm going to read from Revelation 20 to you. And we'll just have a look at the kind of thing you're going to see. Hopefully I've got this right. Revelation 20 in verse 11. This is John speaking the revelation that God has brought to him. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So what we see is there is a great white throne, a symbol, a statement of utter authority, majesty, and on this throne is a king who will judge and indeed rule. He's dressed in white of his, pure, of his purity, his impartiality in his judgments. And it's Jesus who is the judge. God has appointed him to judge the living and the dead. We read of earth and heaven fleeing, introducing a need for a new earth and a new heaven. I'll let you work out the details of what that actually will mean. There is a mass of people there. All who has died and all who are alive at the time of Jesus' return, Christians and non-Christians, not one person will be missing. And for some of you, not one person will be late. Okay? You will be on time on this day. On this day, great books are opened. And in those books are recorded all the deeds that we have done. The motives of our hearts are exposed. Secrets revealed. Things done in the darkness brought to light. There is a book of life. And in the book of life are listed the names of all those who, who have received Jesus Christ personally and know him as Lord and Saviour. And if that is you today, you can begin to cheer in your hearts that that's the book that holds your name. Indeed, Revelation 5.9 speaks about how Jesus has purchased us by his blood so that our names can be written in this book. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the end of death. And the beginning of eternal separation of those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Indeed, the separation of all that God is and all of his character. This is an appointment that not one of us is going to miss. And I don't know, maybe you can tell me later, I've never seen a Hollywood film try and depict this moment with any accuracy. For no imagination can truly comprehend all that will happen. But you and I will have a part in that day. And therefore it's important we understand a little bit as far as we're able to on what actually that day entails. For we realise as Christians that how we live here on earth will have eternal consequences. I'll explain that a little more in a minute. But the point is that this life is no rehearsal. We don't get a second chance to live for his glory. This is it. This is our opportunity. Only now can you and I show and demonstrate the faith we have in God. 
Only, you, only now can you and I love God in the unique way that we can, in a sense that we're not in his eternal presence just yet. Only today can you and I make sacrifices for God as a consequence of our relationship with him. And so the realisation of a day when I stand before God and give an account for my life must surely motivate me to live for his glory now. It's why as churches we must continually bring before our people there is a day when we will give an account. This is no rehearsal, guys. This is an opportunity to demonstrate to Jesus what his love for us has done for us and how it changes the way we live. But before we get on to that, let's just ask ourselves what happens to the non-Christian on this day. In other words, what happens to all those whose names are not in the book of life? We read that they're thrown into the lake of fire. They are eternally separated from the presence of God and therefore all the good things of God. But if eternal separation, the lake of fire, and whether you go there or not, is determined only by faith in Jesus Christ, which it is, we might ask the question, as my mind does, why are these books kept? Why are people's acts recorded? What does it really matter for the non that the non-Christian does or doesn't do? I mean, their eternal position is determined by their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet we read that somehow, and I'll open this up in a moment, that how they live, even though they don't receive Jesus Christ, seems to affect their eternity. We read in verse 12 that they're judged according to what they have done. And though the Bible gives us little explanation on how this happens, so I'm going to ask the question but not give you the answer. Although the Bible gives us a little explanation on how this happens, it does seem to imply there are varying degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. In other words, hell. So, for example, in Luke 12, when Jesus talks about the servant who knows his master will, who knows his master's will, but does not get ready for his return, or does not do what he wants, is beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things, and still does things that deserve punishment, will be beaten with few blows. Now, I don't want to take a parable too far, but there seems to be a difference. In Matthew 11, we read this. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, 
they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. It seems that the measure of revelation a person has of God and who he is and what he calls for seems to be taken into account. How a person lives in light of this could affect their experience of hell. Now, we don't know much more. And at this point, I've exhausted my knowledge. Maybe others will be able to help you. But the Bible seems to indicate there is a varying degree of hell, but doesn't give us any details. However, we must be clear, there is no wall or fence to sit on. There is hell and there is heaven. So I'm not in any way suggesting that an unbeliever can somehow get into heaven because they're not as bad as somebody else. But I'm not the judge anyway. God is the judge who determines what is really bad and not so bad. Even those definitions aren't really good, are they? Sin is sin. But we know no more. But we have to be clear that there is no fence. So what will the Christian experience? Well, the Bible consistently tells us that your and my life will be held to account before God. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done whilst in the body, whether good or bad. So there's a suggestion here of a loss and a gain. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul again writes, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the, expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And then again in Romans 14, we read, Paul says this, So you, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Without doubt, every one of our lives, Christians I'm talking about now, will, our lives will be evaluated before God. There will be an accounting that we give for how we have lived, for the things we've done and the things we have not done. Again, let me be clear. Our entry into heaven is solely based on our personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour and that is determined or, or confirmed by our receiving of the Holy Spirit. However, the choices we make, the things we do and the things we do not do and the motives behind each of them will be evaluated 
in determining our rewards or loss of. Before I get to the rewards, let me ask this question. Why do our works matter if faith alone determines my eternity? So we get back to the old question. If I'm saved by grace, why should I bother? Well, I'd like to suggest a couple of things. One is that God loves to bless. And through the rewards, he recognises our sacrifice and devotion. And so recognising that we are to receive rewards or lose them should be a motivation and a comfort to us. I was in a setting some years ago and Terry Virgo was talking to a small group and someone asked him this question. They said, should we use eternal rewards as a motivation if we're saved by grace? He gave a very theological answer. Yes. Next question. You see, the recognition that there are rewards for how I live as a Christian motivates me to persevere. Have you ever done anything when you think no one really knows what I'm doing? No one appreciates what I'm doing, the price I pay, the sacrifice I make. No one sees what goes on. Yeah, there is one. And he takes a note of it. And he records it. And the day will come when it will be rewarded. So the recognition of me gaining reward should motivate me to press through, to pay the price, to persevere, to put up with opposition, to keep going when the going gets tough or hard. But secondly, rewards are there because the truth is that works, what we do, are evidence, surely, of genuine faith. The truth is, you and I cannot prevent wanting to live for the glory of God. It's who we are, isn't it? That's what's happened at our conversion. James says this. I'm sure James was a northerner because he's very blunt and straight to the point. James says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Claiming to have faith in Jesus Christ, yet not showing deeds of compassion, mercy, acts of faith, sacrifice, love. The truth is that's a dead faith. That may be you've been through an experience, but something has not happened in as much as the Holy Spirit has not come into you and changed you from the inside out. Genuine faith is evidenced by our good works. Not that we're doing good works to prove we're saved, but because we're saved, we cannot help but do the things we know that Jesus wants us to do. Our works matter. The way we live matters. It reflects the degree of our faith, the measure of our faith, and indeed our devotion. 
What are these deeds and good works that count towards my reward? And therefore, how might I lose them? Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats. And he's commending acts of compassion and mercy and kindness and sacrifice. Things that are done to others by his people. Particularly those who are vulnerable and unable to offer anything in return. The guys who serve us faithfully every week without grumbling, I think. But generally, they get in here so early. The people who serve us coffee. The guys who are in there serving the children. Who don't get to enjoy this wonderful preach. Unless it's online. They're making acts of sacrifice all the time. For the benefit of others. Jesus commends these acts. And these deeds that Jesus talk, is talking about in Matthew 25 have not been done to boast about or to promote themselves. In fact, if you read the passage, the people weren't even aware they were doing them for the Lord because it was just natural for them, for them to do it because that's who God's made them to be. So they're not saying, well, because I love Jesus, I'm going to turn up at 9.30. They just accept this is their new life. They're here to serve. And this is the normal Christian life that Jesus looks for. We've got the privilege as a church to honour, uh, sorry, to serve <clears throat> others in other nations. Our friendship with Andrew from Laos, who spoke earlier this year, was a real blessing. I know men, a few of you have mentioned it to me since. Our connection with Cry, who reached into many projects in different nations. It's a real privilege to be involved. We're never going to meet those people. Well, maybe one day some of you will, but we're never going to meet many of the people we touch. And certainly, we're never going to receive anything in return from them. But, because of what Jesus has done in us, we can't turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to their needs. So by serving them, we're not looking for their praise and adoration. We're doing it because that's who we are. These are the good works that Jesus looks for. And my sacrifice and my love for others count towards my eternal rewards. There are other verses that speak of these rewards. In Luke 6 we read, love your enemies. Your reward will be great as God is merciful. In Matthew 5 we read about persevering in persecution for great is your reward in heaven. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about following, uh, picking up our cross and following him. Living sacrificially because Jesus will come with our rewards. And perhaps one of the best examples is Luke 19. In Luke 19, Jesus tells of the story where the master goes away and gives different talents to his servants. On his return, some, has used, some have used their talents well, and yet one has been bone idle and not bothered. The principle in the story is that God has given us everything that we have. Your skills, God-given. Your creativity, God-given. Your talent, God-given. Your resources, God-given. Your ability to make money, 
God-given. It's all given by God. And how we use them will reflect the rewards we receive. The lazy servant in this story did nothing. Couldn't be bothered. He knew he was okay. Couldn't be bothered serving the king. He just lived for himself, not for the king's glory. We, we don't want to be that guy. For on that day when he stands before God, obviously it's symbolically, but you understand, on that day when he stands before God, there will be no reward. Now you and I are given different gifts and sometimes the same gift in different measures. And Jesus expects us to use what he's provided us with in submission to him and for his glory. Not to bury them or to use them for ourselves. But let me emphasise, this is not a competition. Or I'm going to get a better reward than him or her because I've done this more often than them. We don't compare ourselves to one another. For our talents are different, our gifts are different, and the measure of them are different. Our circumstances vary. That's why I always say, please never be impressed by someone who stands here. Never be impressed. Because you don't know the gift that God has given us. If God's given me a gift to preach and I'm lazy about it and can't be bothered about it and don't want to pay a price to do it, you may think, oh, he preaches, he must get a greater reward. No, the measure of the gift I've got is beyond what I do. So therefore, I'm not using the talents to the full. Someone who gives 50 pounds is great. But we don't know if actually the measure of God's resources to them, they could have given 500. Do you see what I mean? You mustn't look at each other. What we must do is get before God and say, how have you gifted me? Come before your elders, because we get to know you as well, and we can see gifts and talents. And other friends can see gifts and talents. And then we discover how to use them to their best. But we don't look at each other. So the question we have to ask is, am I doing my best in the place God has put me, in using all the resources and talents and abilities that he's given me. For example, did I used to prophesy, but frankly, can't be bothered anymore? It's not good, guys. Do I like to serve others, but actually when it gets a bit inconvenient, ah, no, forget it, it's too much hassle. Was I once bold in my witness, but now, ah, who cares? Am I an encourager? We should all be encouragers, but some people have a particular gift of encouragement. Then am I encouraging or am I getting a bit cynical? Am I good at hospitality? Am I being hospitable? Am I good at being compassionate? Am I showing love and care? Am I generous? Am I good at teaching? Then am I teaching? At leading, at serving, do you see? We all need to know before God, what is it you've given me, Lord? What are the talents that I'm here to use for your glory and actually enjoy and gain the rewards in eternity? Does my life demonstrate a devotion to Jesus Christ and a sacrifice to live for his glory? 
Because, dear friends, how we live all adds up and comes before us on that day of judgment. Obviously, being lazy and self-centered gains nothing. But let me read this to you from Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. That verse alone is very sobering. He goes on to say, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. So your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What Jesus is talking about is when we use all these talents, gifts and resources, but actually we use them for our glory. We use them to promote ourselves. It's clear that deeds done to promote ourselves gain nothing. So in that moment, if I let slip in a conversation to Duncan that, hey, you know, I, I felt Johnny was looking a bit hard up, so I slipped him 50 quid the other week, and Duncan says, wow, that's really generous of you, Jeff. In that moment, I've had my reward. That moment of a man's prayer. Duncan may not. He'd probably say you should have given him 100. Don't be so mean. But in that moment, I've had my reward. And it's written out of the book in heaven. Not only that, I've also made Johnny, if he knows that I gave it to him, kind of dependent on me now. Instead of Johnny thanking God that someone's given him 50 quid, he's thanking Jeff. So you see, I've really robbed God of his glory that he should be getting from Johnny, and I've lost the rewards that I should have got for an act of sacrifice because I've claimed the glory for myself. The moment we think that others are impressed by our boasting Although, to be honest, more likely, we've all done it and we've all heard it. You're embarrassed by somebody's uh, boasting. That moment is the reward you're going to get. No more. This is what he means when Jesus says he'll expose the motives of the heart. I've come across many people who have, God has gifted and it's sometimes in ministry in the church, or the, it's in other ways, but the truth is, in the context of spiritual gifts, the spiritual gift becomes their thing for their benefit, for their glory, for their self-promotion. Rather than God's gifted me to preach, or God's gifted me to prophesy, or God's gifted me to heal the sick. And suddenly you want a title, and I'm not saying you guys, but generally speaking, you want a title. Guys, if God's given you talents and gifts, particularly in the context of the workings of the church, we must do them with all humility, making sure God gets the glory, not ourselves. Okay, so what are these rewards? What is it? that we're motivated to live for apart from our natural response to who Jesus is. We're returning to Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about the talents and he comes back and he says in verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, I'll put you in charge of many things. Now, obviously, the greatest 
reward for me is to know my life wasn't wasted, to know that I persevered, loved God, that I ran my race well, that I sacrificed, that I grew in character and trust, that people, as I got older, said, you know, you're not as bad as you used to be. And I'll still say it. However, there is more. Because not only are these talents given in different measures, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, we, we will judge angels. It's in the context of two Christians going to court to, to get an, a, a disagreement sorted out. And he says, what are you on about? Don't you realise that one day you guys will be judging angels? Surely it's time now to learn how to sort these things out to yourself. We'll have angels serving us, ministering spirits there, to serve us, to help us create. Now look... I have no Bible verse for this, okay? So this is how I've understood it for the years, and I would certainly welcome any godly correction. But I've seen this, that our rewards are in some way an authority and a responsibility, that we will have varying tasks to do in heaven. Now, we cannot comprehend the whole universe. We've no idea. Every 10 years, somebody who sends a person up there, a camera up there, discovers another trillion trillion galaxies that we never knew about so I imagine that this new heaven and earth that we will get needs some kind of order that's what Adam and Eve were created to to work the land so I think that when we're in heaven we're not going to sit on clouds with harps we're going to be busy creating there'll be galaxies to explore and we'll have ministering angels coming around us and we'll say do you know let's try that in green Let's try that in red. Let's move that star there and that planet. Let's all, etc. Okay? So some of you will be in charge of a billion angels with three galaxies, with 10 million stars in them, and a million planets, and that will be your responsibility. You'll bring order to that and creativity. Others of you may just have one galaxy. Some of you may get a planet. Me, I'm going to get an allotment plot in Manchester. I'm going to work it to all my best. But there is a responsibility that we will have. And we will have angels ministering to us that we will be in charge of. So, if you know the way I think, what's going to be my next question? Therefore, Will these differing rewards in heaven affect our joy of being in heaven with God? In other words, will the measure of the reward I get affect my love and God's love for me? Absolutely not. Happiness, joy, pleasure and love that is determined by what we have or who we are is one of the many values we won't find in heaven. Isn't that great? We live in cultures, don't we? Where what you have, who you are, what responsibility you have, what authority you have, seems to give you a pecking order. So if I'm ruling over ten galaxies and you've only got one and we're both on earth, people would think, hey, Jeff's a bit more special than the other person. Praise God, that isn't how heaven works. Our worth and value is not determined by what we do. Our joy in heaven and our experience of heaven is equal because it's in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he's consistent. His love for us is equal. For his love for us is never dependent on our works. That unconditional, guaranteed love that he gives us is our motivation to do the things we should do. My rewards won't affect my joy of heaven, nor will they affect yours. And the role and responsibilities we have in heaven is not a measure of our value or worth. So finally, you know when a preacher says that, it's not really. <laughs> He's reminding himself, let's get on with it. Philippians 3, how should we live in the light of that day? That inescapable day that we will all encounter. Philippians 3, Paul writes, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The ultimate prize of an eternity with God is secure because my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and through my faith in Jesus Christ I know I have a place in heaven. But that does not stop me pressing on to win my rewards. So my question is, are you pressing on like you once did? Or maybe never have? Are you pressing through? Or have you put down the gifts and abilities God has given you? Now we all take knocks. We heard this morning Alison's great word about pruning. Hey, if you've got any gift or ability, be sure of this. God will prune you in it in order to bring it better. In latter years, God isn't casual about those gifts. He wants you to enjoy them and use them to his best. And that will involve pruning. Have your priorities perhaps shifted? That you've become a little too earthbound and lost the sight of that day when we'll be accountable to God. Winning our race, getting our rewards is not about never falling down. Never getting it wrong. Never bringing a weird prophecy that no one understands and God, God included. It's not about praying for the sick and not seeing them healed. It's not about trying to evangelise and saying some kind of gibberish stuff that you don't know where on earth that came from. I had a lady used to tell non-Christians that when they became a Christian it was like being tangoed. For those of you a bit old, if you remember that, that advert that went around when someone went slapping him around the face... They had to stop it, didn't they? Because children started going around schools. Winning my race, pressing on, isn't about never falling over. What is it about? It's about getting up every time I fall over. It's about standing up and saying, yeah, I've learned, I'll move on. But I'm not going to give up using all that God has given me for his talents and glory. Because I see a day when I stand accountable to God. And I can't really say to God, oh, well, Lord, I didn't do that. Well, because Duncan said something, it hurt me. That's not going to cut it, is it? Or I didn't do that because I was a bit scared and a bit nervous. Or I didn't do that because the truth is, God, I didn't really trust you. It's not going to cut it on that day. Revelation 22. A few verses from the end of the Bible. Jesus says this. Look. Look where? Look. 
I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I'll give to each person according to what they have done. Guys, I want you to look forward to that day. I want you to be absolutely certain of your eternity on that day. But also I pray that we'll be motivated to run our race, to press through when it's tough, to pay the price so that we will gain the rewards that God's got for us. But remember, his love for us does not vary depending on that. Next time will be the last one and we'll finally be in heaven. And the, yeah, right. Bring it on, I hear you say. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you. Thank you that you put things in your word that are beyond our comprehension. Thank you we're not you. We will never fully understand you. But thank you you've given us every incentive to live our lives fully for your glory and purposes. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters and myself, for any of us, Lord, who are not using the talents and resources and the gifts that you have given us. Help us to see that, Lord. Help us to say, yeah, I'm stepping up again. I'm getting up again to run my race, to live it for your glory, so that on that day, I receive all the rewards you have for me. In your name we pray. Amen. You need help about chatting about these kind of topics, about rewards and about, you know, your gifts and abilities and talents. You know, either speak to one of the elders or, or just a good Christian friend that you trust and say to them, what do you see in me? You might be surprised because particularly choose someone who's encouraging and strengthening. <laughs> You might be surprised what they say. Right, God bless you. See you soon.